All right, well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us and ask now that by your spirit you would give us eyes to hear and ears to see what you... Eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you're saying to us, your church. May your spirit empower us to live as disciples of Christ in the world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, morning. Uh, Great to uh, be with you. And... uh, uh, as you might have picked up if you've been here for a while, but if not, uh, Luke's Gospel at the moment is kind of our, our go-to place when we're kind of in between series or we've got a few weeks spare and we're slowly but surely over the last year or so, couple of years now, uh, working our way. We, we started way back at chapter one, I think in one of the Christmas seasons uh, leading up to Christmas, the Christmas story, and we've sort of just been going at it uh, chunk by chunk uh, and today we find ourselves in a little series Uh, looking uh, through Luke 16. (coughs) It's fair to say that when I opened the Bible uh, during the week and thought, ah, we'll carry on with Luke, and I read Luke 16 verses 1 to 15, I started thinking about other ideas. Um, Because it's it's a pretty confusing sort of uh, parable, isn't it? Uh, I hope that when uh, Ruth read it to you just then, you kind of spent your time going, hang on, what? Because we have here a manager whose boss uh, accuses him of uh, incompetence, of of wasting his possessions. And uh, as the master discovers this, we read in verse 2, he he essentially gives him his two weeks' notice, you're fired. Uh, um, but he's still not completely out of a job, he's got a little bit of time left uh, to kind of close things off before the master kicks him out the door. Uh, We know this because as he's told in verse 2 that he's fired, the manager manager has time to to figure out a, a strategy for survival. So we read about in verse 3 about how the the manager says to himself, what am I going to do? My master's taking away my job, I I can't dig, I can't, I don't want to beg, oh dear, I'm about to be unemployed, I'm not suitable for other employment, I'm going to be in a bit of a pickle. So he comes up with this plan, we read in verse 4, to ingratiate himself to uh, the people with whom he lives. That is, uh, when he uh, has no job and he needs someone to help him look after himself, uh, what's his plan? He's going to call in favours, basically. And so he goes then, uh, as, acting as the manager uh, for his master, and offers some pretty sweet discounts to people. He goes to his boss's uh, creditors and he slashes their bills. So in verses 5 and 6, uh, we read about how he turns a, a 900 gallon of olive oil bill into a 400 gallon. A 450 gallon of all he cuts it in half by 50 percent, a 50 percent discount. Like, you know how good that feels in the shop when you get that dress for 50 percent off? Like, imagine how good this must have felt for this guy. His uh, 900 gallons of olive oil bill is halved. And then the second, uh, different economy, different economies of scale, a thousand bushels of wheat becomes 800, 20 percent off, still making you feel pretty good uh, about life. But 
Where this parable gets confusing is what happens next, because he's just been fired, and so in he, as he's kind of rounding up his, uh, his business, he's got his two weeks' notice, he, he goes and he, it, he kind of seem, he seems to rip off his manager who's just fired him. I mean, imagine you're the master for a second. You've given this guy two weeks' notice and then you find out that uh, his final tasks uh, as he's kind of wrapping up the role were to go and give discounts off uh, the bills that you were owed. I mean, imagine if that happened to you that you, you, you had a series of, uh, of people who were uh, owing you money and you were, in, you, you were making someone else in charge of collecting that money for you and then you fired them and so they collected less money for you and it was all legal and there was nothing you could do about it. You'd be furious. I mean, this is not ethical behaviour. But something really weird happens in this parable. Because in verse 8 we read that the master comes back and instead of kind of getting out his bat and saying, far out, not only were you wasteful, but now you've ripped me off. Uh, You're not fired anymore, you're dead. He doesn't do that. He comes back and he says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He He comes back and says, Well done, son. And then, to make it even more kind of uh, uh, intriguing, uh, Jesus transitions out of that parable into making a point where he basically says, be like the manager. So, uh, second half of verse 8, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What? Like, I hope you're reading that going, whoa, Jesus, like, what are you talking about? That's, that's confusing. It's confusing that the dishonest manager is commended. It's confusing that Jesus says, be like him uh, so that you can... Um, be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's going on there? Uh, And then it gets even more confusing because then Jesus goes on in verses 10 to 12 seemingly to say that how wisely you use your money is maybe connected with how much treasure you'll have in heaven. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What? Like, this is a very confusing parable. And it only kind of gets better because the last two points seem to make total sense to what we would expect. Verse 13, you'll either, uh, if you love money, you, you won't love God. And we go, oh, Thank goodness, Jesus, I was getting a bit concerned that you had no idea what you were talking about, but finally I understand. And verses 14 through 16, he says, don't be a hypocrite like the Pharisees. So 
you know, it ends, we, it ends with some relief, but there's a ho- still a whole lot of confusion uh, before we get there. And I, I want us to try and work through it today. I, I think that the, the issues or the questions that we need to try and understand as we think about what this parable means are these. You might have different questions, that's okay. You can ask me uh, them later, or if you're online, you can put them in the comments. So, I think we have to figure out what verse 8 is all about. Why, that is, we have to figure out why is it that the master commends the manager? What, why does that happen? Next, we need to think about what, what it means in verses 8 and 9 to use worldly wealth to gain friends and be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And then, finally, we need to think about how our use of money is connected to heavenly riches in verses 10 to 12. I think they're the three big questions that you're left with as you uh, ponder this parable and Jesus' kind of instructions to us as a result of it. So let's go to the first problem. Why does the master commend the servant? To think about the answer to this question, we need to think about what is it that makes the manager dishonest? Because in verse 8, we read, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And I think what happens when we read this parable is uh, we read him uh, getting fired in verses 1 and 2, then we read what he does after he gets fired uh, through the next verses, 3 through kind of 7, and then... Uh, we read this verse, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, and we assume that all of the manager's actions are dishonest. Hence why he's called a dishonest manager in verse uh, 8. But it could be the fact that the manager is called a dishonest manager in verse 8 because that's, that's who he is. Like, he's the dishonest manager because he has been wasting his, manager's, his master's wealth and has been fired for his dishonesty. And that's why he's referred to as the dishonest manager. And it could also be the case that the, 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 the behaviour we read in verses 5 through 7 of offering discounts is not dishonest behaviour... It's shrewd behaviour. That is, we can disconnect the dishonest manager's two types of behaviour. The behaviour that got him fired and then the things that he has done since he got fired. Now, if that is the case, that he's a dishonest manager, not because of what he does in verses 5 through 7, but because of what he did sort of prior to the parable starting... uh, and if, in fact, therefore, he's shrewd in verses 5 to 7, not dishonest, and that is what's being commended by the Master, the question is, well, how could that be? How could verses 5 to 7, where he's offering discounts that don't seem to be his to offer uh, on first reading, be, be dishonest? Or be shrewd, I mean. Why, on what basis could the master commend him for ripping him off? And then, on what basis could Jesus commend the man as an example for us to follow 
if it's not the, the case that the actions of verses 5 to 7 are not dishonest, but, but shrewd, uh, you know, wise, good. Well, here, here's my solution for you to this conundrum. And it's not mine, it's people who are heaps smarter than me. A few commentators argue that what the manager, uh, the dishonest manager has done in verses 5 through 7 is reduce the uh, price of the items by his commission. That is, the way you made money as a manager of someone's estate was by charging a commission on those debts. And now we've got some evidence for this kind of uh, first century economic activity in uh, the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, don't we? Where uh, he is uh, uh, got this job as a tax collector and the way he makes his money is by uh, charging people more than he should uh, when he collects tax. You know, you owe $100 in tax, he charges you two or four or six. So... It's, it is the case that we know from the Bible that the idea of co- making, making a living off commission exists. And in fact, we also have some extra biblical uh, information that Daryl Bock refers to in his commentary uh, that talks about this, this idea of uh, the economic realities of first century commissions. Now, I think if you just pause for a moment and think about, think about the 21st century in which we currently live and think about... Uh, if you wanted to tell a story about um, someone uh, having a mortgage or something, you may not go into all the finer details in your story of how mortgages work in the in the 21st century economy with its with their percentages and 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 how banks get money uh, at a, at a lower percentage from from the reserve bank and then how uh, you know all that works uh, and John's probably sitting there going that's not even how it works Chris you, you know you're, you're crazy but when you tell a story about someone paying off a mortgage or something you, you don't go into the de- the details that we all kind of vaguely understand about how our economy actually works and so we just we would just we just kind of get it. Okay, you owe money to the bank, you pay off an interest rate. Uh, we we kind of get it. And so I think that it, it makes sense that the finer details of first-century economics are just assumed by Jesus as he tells this parable to the people who are listening. They get it. Yeah, managers, they've got a commission. It it, it kind of makes sense. So if that's the case, then what's going on here is the shrewd manager uh, who has been dishonest and has has therefore lost his job, has since then acted shrewdly in knowing he's going to need to call in favours when he loses his job, so sacrifices his own money now in order to gain friendship and favour later when he's going to need to survive and he does this at no cost to his employer. Now, there are other views to how to make sense of this parable, but I think this idea of it being a sacrifice of his own commission in order to ingratiate himself to others uh, makes the, the best sense of both his commendation from the manager in the parable itself and of Jesus' kind of uh, encouragement for us 
in verse 8 and following, to be like him. To be wise in how we use our money in order to win friends and influence people. So that is, I think the text supports this idea. We can see other places in the Bible that support the idea of a commission. We've got some extra biblical evidence that supports it as well. We've got good grounds, I think, to go with this commission interpretation. So, if you're convinced by that, that he's sacrificing his commission and that that, that, that is what uh, is being commended, uh, not his action prior, uh, which got him fired, but that action of, of, of a sacrifice of his own money in order to gain friends afterwards, it, I think, makes a little bit more sense of Jesus' instructions uh, and, and encouragement to Christians to be wise uh, in their use of worldly wealth in order to gain friends and be welcomed into eternal dwellings. But let's uh, go and have a little look now at uh, that encouragement in verses 8 and 9. Before we do that, uh, it's true, isn't it, that Christians generally can have a bit of a funny relationship with money. Uh, Worldly wealth, which is literally unrighteous mammon, is the literal Greek words there, uh, is, is, but that idea of worldly wealth is not a bad description of, of how some of us can think about money sometimes. That is, it's all bad, uh, it only corrupts, it's best not to think about it. Perhaps for some, we tend to take a bit of a view that, well, if God's in control, then if I actually think about my money and how to make use of it well and how, to, uh, ex- you know, how, how I can steward it for, for the Gospel uh, and how I can use it for myself then maybe I'm being a bit sinful or greedy, I should just not think about it and just trust God. But Jesus says, be like the shrewd manager, understand the economics of of the world and, and use your money shrewdly and wisely because that's what everyone else is doing. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than other people of the light. If the pagans think about how to uh, use their money uh, to, to influence the world... Well, so should we. This is a parable about a guy who knew how money worked and so he used the economic system of the day to gain friends and influence, to call in favours when he needed them. And Jesus says, as Christians, it's not wrong for us uh, to think about the short, medium and long-term use of the resources that God has given you, the financial resources, your money. And what ought to be the guiding principle in this parable we see? Using worldly wealth to gain friends and be welcomed into heaven. What does that mean? I think what that means is that we need to use money in such a way that others appreciate you for the way you are exercising your use of money or your stewardship uh, wisely with kindness and generosity. For when we use money wisely, kindly and generously in a way that others appreciate for the glory of God, then we are are gaining friends and influencing people. And not only that, 
God will welcome us into heaven and say, well done, because we used our resources to serve Him and fulfill His mission. Steward your money for His mission, be wise in how you use it, be generous in how you use it, and you will be commended when you arrive in heaven. I think that's what uh, Jesus is saying here. So the manager is commendable because he's acting shrewdly within the economic constraints of the day. He's using his money to gain friends and so we should use our money within the economic constraints of our day to, use, uh, to, to gain friends for the gospel, generously, kindly, wisely, stewarding our finances to gain friends and to be welcomed into glory. Next question is how is our use of money in this life connected to heavenly riches in verses 10 through 12? I'll read them again for you. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? We know uh, a little bit later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, comes the parable of the ten, uh, of the ten minas, or the talents in, called in Matthew's Gospel, uh, where Jesus talks about how uh, those who uh, don't steward their, what they are given will not, cannot expect to be given more. But what Jesus is saying here, I think, is uh, he, he's saying that how you use the small things will reflect how you use the big things. And, and one of the small things uh, in, in this life is your money. How you use your money is reflected to how you might use the other riches of, uh, that God can give you. See, money is just one of the things God can bless you with, but He also blesses you with faith, uh, with, uh, other, with other sorts of gifts to serve the church, with, uh, uh, you know, all sorts of other things. And if you're not trustworthy in handling your worldly wealth, however big or small it may be, who will trust you with true riches? That is, if you can't figure out how to use your money, how are you going to figure out how to use other things that God might want to give you? How you use the small things will reflect how you use the big things. There's a Canadian psychologist, he's a bit controversial at times, his name's Jordan Peterson. Uh, and he has this saying that you ought to uh, clean up your room. Uh, and uh, his point is that for many today, uh, uh, we spend all our time trying to solve the big problems of the world, like um, climate change or uh, racial uh, uh, racism. But we do that without having sorted out the small things first, like our bedrooms. You know, it doesn't really matter the state of your bedroom on one level, but his point is, you know, if you've got a messy bedroom and you're worried about a messy world, you know, get your priorities straight. Like, start with the small things and as you kind of practice in the small things, maybe you'll, you'll earn the influence in the big things. It's the same kind of idea, I think, that, that, that Jesus talks about here and in other places of... Uh, uh, you, you've got to 
go with the small things before you can expect the big things. And here Jesus says, how you use your money will qualify you for true riches. You're basically saying that if you handle your money well, whether you have a little or a lot, and by well, I assume we mean, thinking back to earlier, uh, in a way that is wise, kind and generous, uh, for the, in service of the gospel, to win friends, if you do that, then you qualify for true riches, that is, future kingdom service, treasures in heaven, whatever it may be. So you need to be a wise steward of your money for the benefit of all. And as you learn how to use your money well and and as you use it well, I think the final part of this story is a reminder to check your heart lest you become like the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were people who loved money, we read in verse 14. Uh, they love to use money to, to win friends and influence. Uh, uh, they love to, to, to use money to, to puff themselves up. Unless we thought that's what Jesus was saying, this rebuke to the Pharisees uh, sits here at the end of this reading. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Even though you need to be wise in your use of money and you need to uh, uh, unlock your, your resources in ways that are generous and wise and kind, as you use your money to, to win friends and, and bless others, in all of that, we mustn't let money slip into first place in our hearts over God. For that's what happened to the Pharisees. They cared too much about money. And people thought they were very good people and they, 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 they had lots of influence in this world. But in fact, they valued the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so they used their money for that purpose rather than its true purpose and became hypocrites. And that is detestable in God's sight. So, let's use our money shrewdly. And uh, we can do some more work together probably in thinking about what that looks like. But if we want to use our money well, in a way that is kind and generous, then we need to make sure we're constantly asking God for His wisdom. We need to make sure we're constantly asking God to put, uh, to get our hearts right with Him first and money uh, second. And then we need to be seeking every opportunity to unleash our resources for the mission of the gospel. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we know that uh, money uh, can be such a temptation uh, that the love of money is the root of all evil. But we want to be people who love you more than anything else 
and who use the resources of this world, like money, in the service of your kingdom. Help us to be wise and shrewd in the way we use money, worldly wealth. And Lord, as we do this, would you keep our hearts firmly uh, centred on you? Would you uh, continue to uh, reveal more of yourself to us that you may be at the centre of our hearts and our lives in the way that we exercise the gifts you've given us in this life? Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.